0: I'm the executive editor for State Constitutional Commentary. Uh, we're joined here with our panelists. i uh, will introduce shortly. Um, but we're here for a discussion on an explore- exploration of judicial selection methods of state high courts. To get us started, I'd like to welcome the president and dean. President Carl uh, Arm. Hi, everyone. So I get to have the pleasure of welcoming you to the
1: law school. So, first of all, welcome to Albion Law School. We're so thrilled to have you here and be hosting this discussion. Um, you know, as I was thinking about it today, I was thinking about in the intersection of Albion Law Review. and you that's the law center and how these are absolutely two gems of who we are. And so to have the two coming together is really, it's a wonderful moment. it's also, as you can see, giving rise to what's going to be a really interesting and important panel it's engaging with, to my mind, one of the most important questions really before us. Because as we struggle with, you know, thinking about the present and future of our democracy, the role of the judiciary is incredibly important, and it's often very obscure to us. How this, you know how folks are uh, selected and how that process works, and so really engaging this head on, thinking about the process, thinking about the implications of the processes is the perfect thing to be thinking about at this particular moment in time, so I want to say congratulations to the lot of you for sponsoring this, and thank you very much to all of our panelists for being here, and I hope that this is a wonderful and engaging discussion, and again welcome to Albany Law for a fantastic discussion, and I look forward to it.
2: Okay, hey, thank you Dean Carlarn. Um I'm so glad that you can help us get us uh, get things started today. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Marie Therese Witte, and I'm a 3L here at the Albany Law School, and I am Editor-in-Chief of Albany Law Review, Volume 87. I am delighted to welcome everyone, our distinguished panelists, our audience members both here and on Zoom, our fabulous moderator, and other committee members who are also here who have helped bring this event to fruition. I'd like to welcome everyone here to our discussion today, an exploration of judicial selection methods of state high courts. A topic, while always germane, is one that has become increasingly critical given the current legal and political climate of our nation of 50 states. With compelling news stories about high courts in states like Wisconsin and New York, on how judges have ascended to these prominent positions, With the ethical behavior and independence of judges being examined in the court of popular opinion and in the media, and with recent Supreme Court cases directly impacting state constitutional laws, this panel is both timely and necessary. We are so lucky with our speakers today who range from legal historians to judicial ethics specialists, as well as experts in the various selection methods that states employ when placing judges on their highest courts. With that, I would like to introduce you all to Kyle Durkee, a fellow 3L at Albany Law School and the Executive Editor for Lead Articles for State Constitutional Commentary, which is an annual specialty issue that has been published by Albany Law Review for over 20 years. In bringing this panel together, Kyle has tapped into a rich history of state constitutional panels that Albany Law Review has produced, unseen during COVID, but resurrected here today. So thanks to Kyle's efforts, we have a dynamic and interesting panel of experts from across the nation joining us on Zoom, as well as Judge Stein. And here is Kyle now to introduce our speakers to you.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, thank you, marie Threads. And I want to first thank uh, the Albany Law Review and uh, the GOC for helping put together this uh, panel today. But I also want to thank all of you for attending um, our discussion on a very important issue, uh, um, examining uh, judicial selection methods of state Supreme Courts, and really what's going on with that. And uh, to uh, conduct that discussion, we have a wonderful association of uh, panelists assembled here today. First and uh, foremost is John Hole, who is the Vice President of Program Initiatives at the Brennan Center. Uh, he's responsible for guiding organizations, uh, organizations, justice and liberty, national security programs. His areas of expertise include constitutional reform and judicial independence. Uh, not only is the Brennan Center first and foremost in this field, but John Paul has dedicated decades, um, to the study of uh, judicial selection methods. Uh, he has put together uh, two articles, report on judicial selection methods for the twenty first century, and. Uh, Brennan Center, two thousand eighteen proposal the choosing state judges: A plan for reform. Uh, We've put both of these articles in the chat if we'd like to review them. Uh, additionally, we have Professor Chad Oldfather joining us from Marquette uh, University of Law School in the great state state of Wisconsin. He teaches courses in constitutional law, state constitutional law, constitutional theory, judging, and judicial process. Professor Oldfather's primary area of scholarly interest is judging the judicial process, and he regularly speaks, uh, speaks to judges, lawyers, and other scholars about his work. He's currently working on a book, uh, tentatively entitled Judges, Judging in Judgment, the Imports of Judicial Character in a Polarized World, which should be released soon. Uh, we also have with us Professor Noah Rosenblum from New York University Law School. Professor Rosenblum is an assistant professor at the University Law uh, School of Law, where he works on administrative law, constitutional law, and legal history. He's currently uh, pursuing several projects on the place of the president in the administrative state. He received his J.D. from Yale Law School, where he was a legal history fellow and an articles essay editor for the Yale Law Journal. He has a Ph.D. in history from Columbia University. His uh, studies were supported by the Jacob Javits Fellowship. After graduation, he served as a law clerk to Judge Jenny Rivera of the New York Court of Appeals and Judge Cueto Calvrizzi of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Professor Rosenblum is an authority of the New York State courts, about which he has written for several publications for his work on judicial nominations, including his names to the, state, or the city and state um, and hand power 100 list in 2023. Lastly, we also have uh, David Sacker, the director for C- Center for Judicial Ethics from National Center for State Courts. Uh, the National Center for State Courts for Judicial Ethics is a national clearinghouse for information about judicial ethics and discipline. Prior to being appointed director, Sacker uh, was the director of the Arkansas Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission since 2013. Sacker's uh, legal career includes work as prosecutor, litigator, and special circuit court judge. He also served as an adjunct law professor at the William Bowen School of Law at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. He's a frequent uh, presenter on judicial ethics and an active member of the national and international judicial ethics committee uh, community. Uh, we've also provided a link to the National Center for the State Courts, Fords uh, judicial selection page, uh, which is an interactive page to uh, help users determine uh, what state uh, chooses for their judicial selection method. And then lastly, but not least, we are joined by our very own uh, Judge Leslie Stein. Uh, Judge Leslie Stein is a graduate of this law school. She then pursued private practice for 14 years, and then she served as Albany City Court Judge. She was then elected to the State Supreme Court in 2001 before being appointed as an appellate justice on the 3rd appellate Division in 2008. She then pursued an illustrious career before she was nominated and then confirmed to serve on the New York Court of Appeals in 2015. She then... I uh, came back to the law school and joined as the GOC as the director in 2001, where is she currently serves today? We are glad to have her as our moderator to lead off this discussion. Before I give it all uh, off to Judge Stein, I'd like to address the audience. If you have a question, feel free to come up and grab an index card. I'll disperse them uh, and then toward the end of our conversation, I'll collect them uh, and we'll read some of them out to our panelists for a QA session. But with that, uh, I'd like to pass it off to Judge Stein uh, to lead off the panelists up Thank you all.
3: Thank you, Kyle and Marie Therese, um, for your very hard work in, in putting this uh excellent program together and to Dean Carlarn for her welcoming remarks. Um I have had the great pleasure and uh of, of getting to know just a little bit our panelists today. And I think that you are in for a very informative and interesting conversation. Uh, It will be retrospective as well as forward-looking. And uh, I think to have that whole perspective is is very important because we've all heard the phrase that those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. So um, for better or worse, right? And uh, and and from a personal standpoint, having been a participant in several methods of judicial selection as the selectee, <laughs> um, it, it, it's a very uh, complex and, and interesting topic. So, um, so I'm going to stop talking because we have uh, much more important and interesting people to hear from. Let me just explain uh, the how things are going to proceed. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to um, speak for a few minutes on um, their perspective on this topic, um, starting with John Cowell, who will um, set the table for our conversation, I think, um, has done some interesting work in this area. Uh, he will be followed by Professor Professor Oldfather, who um, has um, uh, some... Uh, expertise, obviously, in um, in the subject of judicial character, and uh, also knows a little bit about uh, recent um, events in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, after Professor Oldfather, uh, I will call upon Professor Rosenblum, who is also a historian and um, and and with uh, a, a keen familiarity with the process in New York State. And again, last but not least, um, David Sacker, uh, who will weave uh, the subject I think of judicial ethics into the conversation. Uh, after each of them speak to you for a few minutes, I will um, ask them uh, some questions and uh, we'll leave some time at the very end for um, questions from the participants. So. With that, uh, I'll turn it over to uh, Mr.
4: Cowell.
5: Thank you, Leslie. Uh, And thank you to the Albany Law Review, excuse me, and to the Government Law Center for inviting me to join this timely discussion. It's a topic I love talking about. Uh, This is a panel on judicial selection methods in the states. Uh, and the, the state Supreme Courts, and as we'll find, states employ a number of different methods. And uh, But whatever the method, the selection process for state Supreme Courts has become sharply more politicized in the last 30 years. Uh, in states that choose Supreme Court justices in competitive elections, special interests have learned that it pays to pour millions of dollars to mold a friendly judiciary at the ballot box, rather than settle for a court system that is fair and impartial in states where judges are appointed there's also similar pressure to make highly partisan ends oriented appointments uh, another big problem is the is retribution for controversial judicial decisions either at the ballot box or when a judge seeks reappointment uh, in polls judges have admitted that they the fear of losing their job can affect the way they think about a case and there there's certainly been disturbing Social science research to show that that judicial, um, that the criminal sentences are harsher in the year a judge is up for election. So th- these are that's another important issue I don't want to lose sight of. It's a situation that has seemed ripe for reform for a very long time. And going back to 2000, there was a summit of 17 chief justices that er- issued an urgent call to action to do something about a problem that they has only gotten worse. Uh, you know, A few states experimented with public financing, but this little boomlet uh, kind of came to an end and there was never much traction on reform, mostly because the go-to solution for reformers was merit selection, and merit selection, um, as I'll explain, is, has lost its popular appeal. The last time a state adopted merit selection was 1994. Since then, a, new, a number of other campaigns have fallen flat. At the same time, merit selection systems have not been immune from the pressures that other systems face as well. Special interests have zeroed in on retention elections as a form to punish and intimidate judges uh, and politicians have tried to weaken the independence that was a linchpin of, you know, what, what made it merit selection. Uh, the demise of merit selection is, is, has been a cause for concern, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, it, it actually fits a historical pattern and that if you look at the history of judicial selection, it's a history of cycles. And for some reason, every hundred years or so, We've had to come up with a new way of selecting judges that you know, draws on past practices but feels new as a way to meet emerging challenges. Um, so, at the time of the founding of the of the, of the United States, uh, you know, all thirteen states chose judges through a system of appointment, but it was viewed as a as a step up from the you know corrupt system under King George, where in the Declaration of Independence they said he made ju- you know judges were dependent on the king's will alone. Uh, um, but by the early 19th century, uh, as new states entered the Union and there was a greater push for popular democracy, reformers argued that appointed judiciaries were too tied to the whims of politicians and that judgeships were patronage. And so there was a big push to elect judges. And the elections of judges, were, it was considered reform. It was widely su- successful in its time. By 1909, 38 states selected their judges this way. But the, but elections brought a new set of problems. And then in the progressive era, as as when there was a new wave of democratic reform, reformers argued that elected judges were too often tainted by cronyism and the, and they were too uh, um, influenced by party bosses to be truly independent. So to, this is going back now to the, you know, the 19, 1913. Uh, a new idea emerged uh, to better insulate judges from political pressure Reformers proposed a system that became known as merit selection. And it's a system intended to focus more on individual merit than on p- partisan political considerations. And the way the merit selection system works is that an independent panel screens and vets applicants and then proposes a limited slate to the governor. And that the and it's an appointment system that retains some. Democratic check in that it, uh, I mean, they vary from state to state, but the the it it was meant to have a retention election, so periodically a judge still goes before the voters, but not against another opponent, just shall this judge be kept in office or not? Uh, Today, you know, each one of these systems created in three different waves of reform still exist in this country. You know, some systems, you know, so in 22 states. Uh, high court judges are elected in contested elections, you know, in, in some states they're nonpartisan, but in eight eight states it's with, you know, full party affili- affiliation. Uh, Sixteen states have the merit selection system I describe where the judge is appointed by the governor and later faces the voters in a retention election. There are 10 states where the judge, judges are appointed to the Supreme Court without retention elections. but for fixed terms, which means that periodically they have to be reappointed and face some of the pressures that elected judges face in terms of accountability for decisions. In two states, they retained a method from the colonial period where the legislature appoints judges. Uh, but, you know, I would say that none of these systems really addresses the problems we face today. Merit selection was a good system, but that it, it just has not resonated with people. And I argue in a paper that, that Kyle mentioned earlier that we should follow this cyclical pattern and think about well, what would be the 21st century's you know, version an, or answer to this question. So if, if judicial elections fixed a pressing problem in the 19th century about not trusting elites to make decisions, if merit selection fixed the problem of, or was meant to fix the problem of uh, party bosses, what would be a system to address today's concerns, especially about the role of organized special interests? I look forward to discussing that over the course
3: of this hour. Thank you. I think that uh, that appropriately sets the table, and um, we'll hear next from Professor
2: Oldfather.
6: Well, thank you, and uh, thanks again for the opportunity to be here uh, and take part in this discussion of what are, of course, obviously very uh, important topics. And uh, really, no place, I think, is more timely in terms of illustrating uh, some of these issues than uh, than where I sit right now in Wisconsin, where um, uh, where I've uh, only half seriously thought to myself, I need to keep a browser window open during the course of this discussion to keep track of breaking news uh, as things develop here. So let me give you a little bit of the background of of what's going on here, which really kind of illustrates, I think, all of the all of the pathologies uh, that uh, have been associated with uh, judicial elections, and it's kind of a long story, but the short version goes something like this: uh, Wisconsin is uh, a very polarized uh, and uh, politically dysfunctional state, um, and pretty much pretty much a purple state, right? Statewide elections uh, have lately tended to trend Democratic, but uh, but it's gone back and forth uh, over the last couple of decades. We have an elected judiciary, which is nominally nonpartisan, but uh, pretty much for the entire time I've been here, which is just about two decades now, uh, those elections have been really understood in more or less partisan terms, right, really as kind of proxy contests in the larger political wars in the state. Uh, The most recent election in April uh, was one that flipped the court from a 4-3 conservative majority to a 4-3 liberal majority and that campaign not surprisingly uh, featured two main issues uh, one of them was abortion uh, and the other was gerrymandering uh, the state's political maps are extremely gerrymandered uh, as i mentioned the the state is pretty much evenly divided politically uh, in statewide elections but it nonetheless uh, is mapped in such a way that the republicans have a supermajority in the legislature uh and part of that is just a you know, product of the fact that the political geography of the state supports a sort of natural gerrymandering because most of the Democratic votes are in the state's two largest cities. Uh, but it's certainly been amplified uh, by the way, by the way, the maps um, have, have been drawn. Uh, the winning candidate, the liberal candidate, uh, Janet Protese, which, uh, in that election was quite open during the campaign about her views on both issues, right, that she's that she's a pro-choice a person than that, she's someone who characterized the maps as rigged. She did, nonetheless, say uh, that you know she wasn't pledging how she was going to vote uh, on any of those particular cases or issues if they were to come before her, uh, but you know signaled quite clearly where she stood on things. Um, the latest things going on here relate to challenges to the maps. There were two cases that were filed almost uh, immediately after she took her oath of office. Uh, asking the court to reconsider its decision from probably about a year and a half ago uh, now where it uh, where it in effect uh, generated in a sense, uh, the maps that are being used for for elections in this state and by doing that what it really did was accepted maps drawn by the Republican controlled legislature. Um, uh After those suits were filed, uh, the Republicans pretty much immediately indicated that they firmly believed that she, Justice Protosiewicz, should recuse herself, uh, and that if she did not do so, they would uh, impeach her, or at least consider impeaching her. Uh, Late Friday afternoon, uh, she announced that she is not recusing herself from those cases, and almost simultaneously, uh, a majority of the court indicated that it is accepting the cases, so that the MAPS cases are now uh, live before the court. Um, as of, I think the the latest news is uh, that the uh, the leader of the Wisconsin legislature had, uh, after initially floating the idea of impeachment, I think encountered quite a bit of of uh, resistance, um, political resistance generally uh, to that. Uh, his response was to convene a sort of shadow panel of uh, former state Supreme Court justices to seek their advice on whether impeachment would be appropriate. The latest development is that one of those former justices uh, shared a letter that he wrote to the uh, to the legislative leader, strongly indicating his view that impeachment would not be appropriate, right, that, that, that it really is something that should be limited to crimes and to corruption while in office, and that we don't have either one of those things here. Uh, that, at least so far as I know, unless uh, something has changed since I got on this uh, on this call, uh, that's where things uh, stand uh, as of the moment. So it looks like impeachment uh, won't be happening. Uh, hard to say for sure. I think that the remedy that's that's going to be pursued. I'm skeptical that it will be successful, uh, but would be um, uh, seeking to have the U.S. Supreme Court intervene uh, under a theory that uh, that her sitting on this case would be a violation of due process cited, um, basically rooted in a case called Caperton versus Massey. So the the bottom line is we're pretty much at the leading edge in terms of all the various unpleasant things that can happen relating to judicial elections. Um, very, very briefly, you know, my contribution to how we fix things, the book that, uh, that Kyle mentioned earlier, uh, you know, it involves a re- Focus on what's often called judicial character, by which I mostly mean habits of mind that we associate with having good judgment. Things like taking a detached perspective, being intellectually humble, and so forth. Uh, it's not an entire fix. I don't think there's a complete magic bullet sort of fix out there, but uh, but I'm at least going to make my my small case for that. And uh, with that, um, I'll I'll pause for now. Thank you. Um, that
3: certainly fascinating dynamics going on right right before our very eyes. Um, So uh, next, uh, Professor Rosenblum, uh, I think will uh, give us some insight into New York's system of judicial selection.
7: So thank you so much. Well, after John and Chad, I feel like I have very little to add of interest because John's analysis of the history struck me as exactly right. And in comparison to what we're seeing in Wisconsin, the New York courts are just a model of boring probity and stability. And that's despite having had what I think is widely regarded to be the most contentious selection for the New York Court of Appeals in recent memory, in which I did play some role that we can talk about. So why don't I just spend just a couple seconds telling a little bit about the history and how we got here, and then some of the questions that might be in front of people thinking about New York judicial selection, both in reference to that history and by contrast with Wisconsin. And then we can talk more during the Q&A. So the history first. So just to reiterate what John said, putting on my legal history hat, There are cycles of selection when it comes to the way state judges have been picked. There's a wonderful book on all this. You should read John's paper, obviously. Um, But if you're interested in in a more purely historical look, you could look at a legal historian named Jed Sugarman, who wrote this book called The People's Courts, that gives a deep history of judicial selection in the United States. And it tracks that waffling back and forth. Now, New York state was traditionally considered a state with a deep commitment to elections. So in the 1970s, there's even a lot of discussion about how, yeah, yeah, other states in the progressive era embraced merit selection or looked at other ways of doing things. But New York, despite the dominance of some pretty corrupt machine interests, like the tweed Democratic ring in New York City, nevertheless remained committed to elections. Why does this matter? Well, in the early 1970s, there were some pretty hard-fought and contested elections that look sort of like what Chad was describing happening in the most recent Wisconsin election. It didn't involve quite as much outside money. It didn't involve a sense that the broader national culture wars were being fought out in New York, but it did involve some contests between characters that made old-fashioned virtues that Chad was talking about, like judicial temperament seem, um, out of place. And, uh, as the, um, as, as several government reports at the time referred to it, the election was perceived to be unseemly. Okay. I have to put on my history hat and put a little asterisk here. There's a lot of other stuff going on there. The election that happened that people commented on pitted the then sitting chief judge who won this guy, Charles Braytel against a, um, a uh, tort lawyer, Jacob uh, Fuchsberg, um, after whom Turo Law Center is now named. Um, and, you know, even the descriptions of the characters capture something about the tension between the two that might make you think there's more going on here than just a fight about judicial temperament. So um, Charles Breitel is described as being uh, soft-spoken, dressing in a suit and vest and tie, Whereas Jacob Fuchsberg is always described as a former plaintiff's lawyer who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money and wore clashing suits, shirts, and ties. Um, When I teach my students about the legal profession, I remind them that up until the 1960s, even major New York law firms refused to hire immigrants, Jews, Irish people. Right, The New York Bar was one of the most discriminatory organizations in American legal culture. And obviously, I'm not saying the New York Court of Appeals was like that, but but you can hear an echo of the way in which part of what's going on here is a lawyer who's not like us trying to break into this more staid world of people who look the right way and act the right way. OK, super contested election. Everybody says it's very unseemly leads to a raft of reforms, volumes of government reports, a message from Governor Hugh Carey saying, you know, there are a bunch of problems with the New York courts and we should really address them. And in particular, we should rethink how we're doing judicial selection. Um, Judicial selection isn't the only thing folks are thinking about at that moment. What becomes the constitutional amendment that gets us the current method of selection of judges in New York includes, among other things, the creation of the Commission on Judicial... um, Uh, uh, behavior, the Judicial Conduct Commission, right? So there's a a sense too that we need to regulate judges, and that the regulation of judicial ethics is intimately related to judicial selection. So you can see how the realm of questions Professor Oldfather is working on in his book is directly related to the political issues that actors at the time are grappling with. Um, Those reforms pass, and they get us the method of selection for judges that we currently have. And that then gets us to the point that John was making earlier. That there are benefits and downsides to any method of selection. So the method of selection that New York chose, this hybrid merit selection model, has some real advantages to it. In particular, as compared to the way in which the elections in the 70s brought in vast expenditures and put judges in this position many people thought was unseemly, where they needed to campaign but couldn't actually take stands on the issues they were campaigning on. So again, right, think back to to Professor Chad Oldfather's presentation about Wisconsin, the challenges that are put on a judge who is simultaneously campaigning while knowing that they're going to hear cases related to what they're campaigning on and the ethics issues that raise. So you go to the merit selection model that New York has and you get rid of that. So that seems like a nice advantage. There are some other knock-on advantages too. The system we use in New York for the highest court, the New York Court of Appeals. Is that there's a commission on judicial nomination that does an initial cut and selects a certain number of names to be forwarded to the governor. The governor picks one, then it goes to the senate for confirmation. That part of the process was explicitly modeled on the federal selection process. So so, um, that commission gets to do the first cut, and the commission includes lawyers from a bunch of places in the state with a bunch of different concerns, and they very, very rarely let through people who don't meet minimum standards of qualification. So great positives. On the other hand, and this takes us back to John's story, the history, right? When you have a bunch of people in a room somewhere making a decision about who gets to make the most important decisions over freedom and liberty and equality, that can make people uncomfortable. That's why you get this revolt against this kind of elite selection during the Jacksonian era. And then at other moments in the 20th century in which people want a closer connection between the judges and the people. In New York State, the Commission on Judicial Nomination had a whole bunch of rules it was supposed to follow. It was supposed to be concerned about professional diversity. It was supposed to solicit applications widely. And yet many people, and here I have to out myself, were a little disappointed with the historic lists that were put forward. While there were some amazing candidates on the lists, it began to look like the lists were not necessarily matching up with what the commission was supposed to be doing. And when you started to peer behind the commission to ask, wait, What are the mechanisms of accountability for this commission? Who's actually picking what happens on this commission? We started to hear some disturbing things. So under former Governor Cuomo, who made some wonderful selections for the court, there were also rumors that he was pre-baking who would actually come out of the commission on judicial nomination. And there was no way to check or figure it out. So that begins to look like an undermining of the merit principle that John was describing before. So the method of selection may have solved some problems, but undermined some other problems. So that gets us basically, that's the background to where we find ourselves in today. I hasten to add that while many courts of last resort have been divided in some of the same ways that Wisconsin is, New York's court, even though there are ways that you can track politicization, has both as a historic matter and as an analytic matter, tended to avoid The worst forms of politicization that we can see in other courts like the United States Supreme Court. However, there are some of the same questions that are going to come before the New York Court of Appeals that have come before other courts. So, for example, the court in New York is going to hear a case about the drawing of congressional districts in New York State, which could have similar national impacts. And there's a whole body of literature that looks at the relationship between state law and these federal political issues and suggests that it's increasingly difficult to maintain that barrier. And that barrier has been important historically for some of the independence of state courts from national political dynamics. So there's real questions about the future of New York state courts, which makes it even more important to consider the extent to which the selections for New York judges does or does not live up to the problems that it was meant to solve.
3: Thank you. And finally, uh, Mr. Sacker, uh, after hearing all of this, uh, I think we uh, could use a little bit about um, judicial ethics.
8: Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to, to Albany School of Law and to uh, all my co-panelists for having me be a part of this. Um, I am uh, actually being hosted by Appalachian State in Boone, North Carolina. I was on vacation uh, but still agreed to speak because I wanted to be a part of this panel and they've graciously taken me in uh, where I had a good facility, so I could make sure to speak to you today. Um, and uh, I'm from Rosebud, Arkansas, uh, which is a long way from anywhere, particularly to where I am now, working with all the chief justices in the United States and traveling abroad. Um, but judicial ethics has been part of, of my my past for the last 15, 20 years um, as a judicial conduct uh, director. And, Really, what happened over all these years, I've investigated and prosecuted judges for misconduct. What I've learned is that the vast majority of judges serve with honor and distinction, and they got there by rising to a level of success in their own profession. Um, I believe the judiciary is the heart and soul of our democracy, um, that we do need the uh, the bones and the muscle, so to speak, from the uh, legislature and the executive branch. But fundamentally, we are who we are because of the judiciary keeping our promises that it doesn't matter how populist something might be. There are certain things about us that we decided that make us American, and that's where it's kept. So what we're talking about really is quality control. How do we make sure that we we select these people and also that our judges maintain that ethical point of view? Um, One thing to remember too is that, you know, we do hear a lot about the Supreme Court and federal courts, but 98.5% of all cases in America are filed in state court. It's not even close. Um, the National Center for State Courts was started by Chief Justice Berger because he saw that, hey, over fifty years ago that hey, the feds have this great system and it's all similar, no matter where you are. How do we make sure that best practices are happening in Wisconsin that are also happening in Arkansas? And we do that by bringing these people together, including our court administrators and our chief justices. Um, you know we have all heard the quote from from George Washington that the, due administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good government but he also said however many forget that he said i have considered the judicial department as essential to our country and to its stability hence the selection of the fittest characters to expound the laws and dispense justice has been an invariable object of my anxious concern george washington lost sleep about how we're going to pick judges and that's why we're here today like the, all the different ways we do it but how are we going to do that? So uh, over the time that I've discussed this, you know, the Federalist Papers even talk about not all are going to have the highest qualifications to be a judge. We expect more and we should. And I'm glad that we do. And in general, uh, our states follow some sort of way to try to vet them and make that, that possible. Um, uh, we, we understand that, you know, we, I, I think John was right on point talking about how there hasn't been a fundamental change since like 94, 95 with Rhode Island and. We talk about it a lot, but how do you get it done? And so, one thing I've, I've, I've said as a judicial ethics person, um, you know, as a conduct commission, I was I was the national president for the Association of Judicial Disciplinary Council. If I take a side, and I guess we probably all have a side. If we were going to debate it, um, you know, they might say, "Oh, election," "Oh, merit," "Oh, whatever." I might not be in the conversation. I might alienate certain certain people. So while the professors may have um, uh, different ways of looking at it, my point of view is to say, I don't care in in the right way. If you elect them or if you appoint them, I want two things. I want it to be transparent. I want to make sure that I'm there as a voice of ethics. And we are and people like the Brennan Center and others are here in the National Center for State Courts to say, uh, we need to know who our judges are beholden to. Um, and that is super important. And secondly, that whatever we do, it promotes independence. Um, you know, and uh, all the comments so far have have mentioned that to a certain extent, that we can't have judges that have a one-year election term. It's going to turn into a populist situation. It's one of the reasons why, and here I'm going to show my hand a little, I don't particularly like retention elections, because then all of a sudden it's it's populist. It's 50% plus one. So if that person gets appointed, and then four years later, they were sitting on the gay marriage case in the in in the South, for instance, where gay marriage was not as popular. Um, guess what? They don't have anyone to run against. They just they're just running against the fact that people don't like their last opinion. Um, so those are things that we look at. But I think you know, and and um, as we continue, um, when uh, when I'm called upon to talk about things like you know, how do we promote judicial independence and how do we create confidence. I'll follow up on my two-pronged argument there of transparency and independence. Um, But I think those are the most important things from an ethics point of view because that also insulates judges. Uh, It gets us better people. And then also it it insulates our judges from the ethical issues that they all face. And let me promise you that over 15 years, I uh, had some really big cases involving judges who were removed from the bench, big scandals, things like that. I am more confident in our judiciary than I was 15 years ago. I have met fantastic, brave people who make decisions that don't benefit them at all. They, they suppress evidence against a terrible criminal because it's the right thing to do. They, they make decisions uh, even in, in a political uh, arenas that are not easy to do. So I am more confident in them, um, but they do face constant ethical challenges. They just do. You're, you've, got, you've got friends, you've got uh, whoever helped you get to where you are Um, They don't care about your judicial ethics the same way you do as the judge. So again, I I hope that we're able to to contribute that way. And it's certainly something that, um, you know, that has kind of driven my career and what we're doing now at the National Center. So again, I'm very thankful to be here and happy uh, to be a part of this panel.
3: Thank you, Um, and and now uh, we will try to unpack some of this a little bit. Um, My first question was going to be why is the process of selecting high court judges important, Um, but I think maybe George Washington answered that question already. So um, uh, unless anybody has anything to add to that, um, and which you're welcome to do, uh, I'll move on a little bit. And, and, and I wanna talk a, a little bit about values. Um, the Brennan Center has posited that um, the following values are uh, important in determining how to select high court judges. And they were judicial independence, accountability, public confidence, diversity, and quality, and to that, I might add transparency, although all of these sort of interact. And um, so uh, what I would ask first, if anyone disagrees with um, that list and however we define it, maybe we can go a little further into that. Um, and um, if if you do, why do you? And, and also, um, are there any other values that should be added
5: uh, to that list. I, I'd add just one more value, which is uh, democratic legitimacy. And the challenge, of course, is how to do that in a way where it doesn't mean that every ruling is subject to like a popular override. And I think, you know, David is right that there, the, the populist element can can become, you know, a constraint or like a threat to to judges. At the same time, there needs to be, it's an element of 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 public confidence, but it needs to feel like it's the the the, the judiciary is operating in a constitutional way that they're And so I I just put that out there because I do think, you know, people go to elections as a way of having democratic legitimacy, but there's other ways, but it's really important. And I think it goes to like the, the how you select judges, which David got into a little bit, even in an appointment system.
6: And I'll I'll jump in with I maybe this is maybe this is an addition maybe it's just kind of a filling out some of what's already on the list but you know I referenced talking about in the book uh, you know I- intellectual humility as uh, as a, I think an important value and you know to to sort of underscore that you know one of the things that troubles me that one sees I think increasingly these days and you know it's it's possible my perspective is skewed by by being where i am but um but is that there are judges and justices who seem much more often nowadays than in the past to insist that there is a single correct methodology uh for deciding legal issues and that if another judge or justice does not follow that methodology they're acting illegitimately and you know, I think that threatens a lot of the values. I think that threatens the legitimacy, the perceived and actual legitimacy of courts, and uh, you know, and 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 it's objectionable to me. You know, both in in that sense, and I just you know intellectually don't think that's an appropriate way. I think that nobody has uh, has the answers uh, to all of the questions. Uh, there are too many conflicting values that the legal system has to attempt to accommodate. Um, and to think that there's a single key, uh, to doing so just seems to me to be misguided. And it seems to, in a sense, replace, um, you know, the ultimate aim of the system, right? We have a judiciary for functional reasons, right? Courts are there to serve a, a, a social purpose. Uh, and if we replace trying to serve a social purpose with trying to be faithful to a methodology, I think we're really losing sight of something
7: important. I totally agree. And I was just going to say that for me, a key anchor is that old dictum that justice requires the appearance of justice, which I first encountered in a Frankfurter opinion, but it goes back much deeper in the common law. And it's exactly what John and Chad are picking up on with this question of legitimacy that I remember in my first year of civil procedure as we were learning CivPro and we got to the different values that procedure serves, my teacher said, and then of course, we have finality and repose. And I remember thinking like, what are you talking about? And and the professor explained, well, yeah, like people go to court to solve problems, and we need the courts to be able to solve those problems, which means people need to be able to walk out and, and have brought their dispute to finality, to let the dispute repose. That doesn't mean that they're satisfied. It just means that whatever their dissatisfaction is, can live with it. And then thinking about this as just a boring person, it's really hard to live with a decision if you feel the decision is unjust. And if the decision appears unjust, it's very hard for you or for others to treat it as just. So to me, I feel like that dictum, justice requires the appearance of justice. It's a great guide for judicial ethics. It's also a pretty useful guide for thinking about selection of judges. And it picks up on many of the values that Judge Stein and that John were talking about before. right? Why is diversity so important? For reasons of epistemic humility, just as Chad was saying, you got a lot of different perspectives. It's a big pluralistic world. But also just for the appearance of justice. If I go in front of a court and it's got four 80-year-old dudes on it who tell me what the law is, if I've got a lot of confidence in those four 80-year-old dudes, if they're all Judge Guido Calabrese and my grandfather, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe I trust them. But if it's just four randos, I'd be like, as a 37 year old younger man do they do they even understand how i see the world does that does that appear like justice and it's it's going to be a lot harder especially if you imagine it in front of a court that looks really different that's got a much greater diversity of ages or professions or values so a, a long way of saying i think that that from that tiny little insight that justice requires the appearance of justice you can actually start to get an awful lot of Substantive commitments, including several of the values that, that John and Judge Stein pointed to.
8: Well, I get the benefit of, of hearing the, the esteemed panelists talk before me, and it's wonderful. Um, but I will add collegiality and, and 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 Professor Oldfather, that was those were excellent comments as well. Um and I'll say that because we're talking about the state's highest courts, there are a lot of people who can, you know, do a traffic court who can step up, but I have talked to judges. It's it's the world I live in. Right. I'm talking to to appellate court judges all the time who tell me it was hard to get used to the fact that I couldn't just make a decision. And there it went. I now had to talk to find four other votes or three other votes. And that collegiality we're talking about is is legitimate, but also it's a vital function of being on an appellate court. It's it's a different skill set than being a trial court criminal judge uh, where, okay, I'm going to make a ruling on evidence. Let's move on no on the supreme court now you got to figure out someone's going to dissent if they're going to dissent am i going to respond to their dissent or should i change my opinion all those things come in and you know and i also agree what's been said about you know you know in in the military they've got uh, the generic term of conduct unbecoming you know we should have that in our judiciary um look you don't mouth each other you don't call each other reagan judges and carter judges and all that stuff we see right now the my team your team I do a, a, a continuing legal education on this. You know what your platform is? Your oath. And I can break the oath down and say, this is your platform. Now, we talked about the difficulty of campaigning on that. How do I talk to people when they're asking me questions about all this stuff? But those are two very important things. And briefly on, on diversity, I also agree that that's an important part to see people like you and that they have an opportunity. I did some work um, last couple of years ago in UN uh, in Qatar. And they have promised to have 30% of their judges to be female by 2030, which would exceed U.S. numbers in most places, if not all. Um, Why? Because the Qataris know they have to have a legitimate secular court system to have the billion-dollar businesses they want to come there. If they think it's just some 80-year-old dudes, right, or just some local dudes that don't understand our business, they won't do business there. So um, not only is the legitimacy makes people have confidence and confidence is the fuel of the judiciary.
3: So it it strikes me that um, we probably, you know, I'm assuming that when we talk about intellectual humility and collegiality, that that all sort of goes in the bucket of Quality—the quality of the judges, right—and and there probably are an infinite number of things that we might identify as what we want to see in a judge. Certainly, you know, being ethical, um, and I—I um, mean, I, I don't know if anybody wants to add any thoughts to that aspect of it. No, okay. Um, so, one question I have is. Um, have societal views of these values changed over time? And is that something that we um, can expect to keep changing? And, and does that affect how we should um, be uh, designing our methods of, of high court judicial selection?
7: I'm happy to take a first crack at this, just, just as, a, as an allegedly um, card-carrying historian and say that that absolutely attitudes about this have changed in ways that I find totally fascinating. So one example I like to bring up is that Judge David Davis, who became a Supreme Court Justice, was made a Supreme Court Justice because he was Abraham Lincoln's campaign manager. And it was widely understood that he was a political actor, so much so that during the contested election of 1876, when the issue came before the country about how to resolve who would be the next president, Rutherford B. Hayes or... um, or Samuel Tilden, the commission they put together was evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. And they decided they would give Davis the tie-breaking vote. And the Republicans thinking, oh, wait, well, he's a Republican, decided that in order to sway him to their side a little bit more, they just elect him to the Senate. Back then, state representatives picked their senator. It wasn't direct election. And they did. And then he resigned to become a senator. So, and And nobody thought there was anything untoward in that, right? That was the entire sort of mental model, and, and even up through World War II, the kind of independence of the judiciary that we now kind of take for granted, which people believed in as a value, right? Go back to to um, David's uh, letter from George Washington, just was manifest in very different ways. So Fred Vinson, Chief Justice in the Truman era, is like playing cards at the White House, and nobody thinks that's a problem. So So the attitudes around what it means to be a judge have changed. And the related attitudes about how we should pick them changes too, right? If you think of your judge as someone who's supposed to go play poker with the president, well, then you're going to be much less concerned about the kind of campaigning they're doing with an elected official. If you pick Abraham Lincoln's campaign manager to be be a chief justice, to be a justice, then you're actually like drawing from politics in a way that that now right? we're much more concerned about. So I think many legal historians point to Abe Fortas, a Supreme Court justice who was forced to resign because of ethical improprieties. Putting on my historian's hat, I would just say that a lot of the things Abe Fortas did, other justices had done before and weren't a problem. So what's changing there is popular attitudes and expectations. So since then, we expect a much greater degree of remove for our judges. But that is, that is, that is hard to maintain when the judges are acting in ways that are so implicated in our politics. So just to end my little rant. Right. Felix Frankfurter is the guy who introduced me in his opinions to the justice requires the appearance of justice. Frankfurter was terrified about what would happen if the courts got into the business of ruling on questions like voting rights or how districts were drawn. He feared it would pull judges into what he called the political thicket. Frankfurter wanted judges to be in some sense independent, and he believed that you had to really limit what judges could rule on in order to have that independence. Frankfurter lost, right? He he wanted a much more cabin judiciary. And in fact, he he ultimately was in dissent a lot in his last years because the Warren court began hearing a much wider range of cases. And now that ship has totally sailed, right? Regardless of what political party you're from, the federal and state courts are ruling on such a huge swath of issues, including as Chad and I were telling you about questions of gerrymandering. So if, if that's the kind of judiciary we're going to have, it's then it's it's much more difficult to then turn around and say, oh wait, you know we, we we want to have the same kind of harsh division between the political and the judicial, and thus the methods of selecting are going to be much more in this other genre. So, yeah. so I I think I think Judge Stein's question is right on the money and explains why it's so important to think about this in historical perspective.
5: Well, I I want to add to that. No, no, I think that was really well put, and and there's no there's no doubt we have. You know, for better or for worse, in the in every form of government in the U.S. state and federal, we have a political selection system. You know, political actors make the choice, and and it is true that politicians have been you know moved into the judiciary throughout our history, and that certainly happens probably more at the state level than the federal these days. I mean, there's been uh, we but we have moved, and I think it's it's mostly because well, two things. One is. We've relied on the courts to make more momentous decisions, and and because they they are the ultimate policy maker on a lot of decisions that could and should be made legislatively, it's also raised the stakes of who gets to be on a court, and and this that this these more removed characters are also people who were have less seem less and less in tune with most people's lives. You know, you have a lot of you know judges now who kind of get to the judiciary in a kind of. Judicial hatchery, you know, where they basically belong to one society or another. They're vetted for their ideological purity. And then they're, and where, where in the old days, someone like a Frankfurter who was a political insider, you know, had FDR's ear could basically go in a different direction the push is much, much more that even a slight deviation makes you a traitor, you know, no more suitors, no more Roberts, you know, th- it's always that call and you're going to hear it on the progressive side. And, uh, but I will say not having politicians has also led to decisions that make no sense. And that you know, it used to be, there'd be a few former political officials on the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, we're talking about the states. Um, so, I, 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 What I, what I want to say, I think the thing that has changed and maybe could shift again in our culture is moving away from uh, high stakes, a high stakes notion of the judiciary, making all of these important decisions, have the legislative, uh, you know, have, have the political branches reassert their role and authority and do more and take the responsibility for making those decisions and conceive of the judicial role as in a more minimalist way making smaller decisions and having people be um happy with that that's a culture change that would take a long time though
3: yeah and 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 it it seems pretty obvious also that the um that the goals of independence and accountability are at great tension with one another and 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 i i wonder um you know how what what are some ways that we can reconcile them?
8: Well, I mean, I'll answer a little bit. Um, you know, independence is the judge's freedom from influence and control, other than those provided by the law, right? And so we want judges not to be in the the code of judicial conduct is you know standard to a certain extent. In almost every state it says something similar. The judges should be uh, free from public clamor and they shouldn't be going like, oh, my, this is going to make such a big difference. I'm going to I'm going to you know, have a hard time on this one. No, that's what they're there for, as has already been said. when talking about finality and and having an ultimate decision. That's exactly what they're there for. What what is it? <laughs> well, it's very uh, Marcus Aurelius, basic stoic logic. I need something to tell me what is it. And, and we get lost in the forest sometimes, but that's what we need from our judges. Um, and so independence, you know, if you if we were sitting around the table, of course, first of all, I would love to have this panel choosing judges because I think we would, we would come up with some really good folks that would be great. I promise you the political powers that be are never going to turn that over to us. But nevertheless. Right. So uh, we can go, oh, we'll look at this all in, in a good time and come up with folks. But when I was asked in Arkansas, they were considering a reform. John maybe remembers it when Arkansas was considering changing, uh, you know, to a, some sort of merit selection, at least for appellate. Um, and um, I said, if it was up to me, and and I had to pick something, I would have done a 14-year one-time term, right? Well vetted, whether it was a big committee that included the bar and the local senate, and da da da, and it goes to the governor, and the governor can choose one of those three. But if you really want them to be independent, you let people see how they were selected. You have, uh, you know, something like that, and then you give them the freedom to say, now I'm on the bench in good behavior. We always say lifetime term that's not what the uh, the constitution says it says in good behavior which is where my career was started <laughs> making sure that there was good behavior by those judges um and that's what we did and i think that that was something that that kind of was driving uh that type of independence and the transparency that comes with it we just did some um uh, focus groups we do a lot of them and the, the results aren't coming out yet i think they come out in november but i'll give you a little preview when people were asked about judicial elections, and, and I think John for sure would agree with me, they're very troubling. There's a lot of trouble with judicial elections. Um, but one of the things they said was, we want more information. We want to know, and and, and we want like a bio, a, a current picture. People will put pictures on from when they were in high school, apparently. And then also we want to know, maybe in 150 words or less, some independent here's what their career was, or here's who they are. Um, That's more than just the advertisements we see on TV. So I think those are things that help drive independence. And again, you know, there are many more, but having the discussion of truly looking at, no, I don't don't want my judge to be worried that two years from now, every major decision is going to result in a campaign against them. We saw that in Iowa, we saw that in Tennessee, where the retention elections were not about whether Old Father, Rosenblum, Sacker, or Cowell were, were, were qualified. It was about, I didn't like their last opinion, and I would have voted against it. Well, you know, again, there was a t- time in this country where women weren't allowed to vote, and all kinds of other things that were populist and, and very popular if they would have been voted on, but that's not what we promised. We promised we would be better than that, and how can we keep our promises if we don't give them that independence?
5: It's interesting you mentioned the fixed term, David, uh, we at the Brennan Center we looked at this question, and when you talk about accountability, first of all, like it means it's even what accountability. I mean, accountability to the function of the, the role of a judge. You know, the, accountability to the Constitution, not accountability to the, the 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 faction. You know, the party that got you in. I mean, that's the fear is that people think, oh, you know, we organize in this state. You know, it, it happens in both parties, but like you know, whether it's trial lawyers or the Christian right, you know, we get our person on the bench and they're there representing us like that's not what can, that can't be accountability but we um as I mentioned in the beginning there's the pressure of getting selected in the first place and, and whether it's elections or in partisan systems I mean a point of systems that's that's a concern people get but it's the reselection is really what we put our finger on that once you're on the court if you have to be reelected. Face the voters in a retention election. Whether you get reappointed by a governor down the road, then it, then are you? Can you really be accountable to your function fully? Can you be really independent, or are you looking over your shoulder? So, we proposed a system. Uh, you know, for a long time, we our view was let a hundred flowers bloom, and we supported all kinds of reforms. But we've really landed on that that we need to get rid of judicial elections. There can be a way of appointing elections through like a more publicly accountable appointment system, we call it. And by that, it means that you would um, uh, have, number one, have very clear uh, criteria for selection, an Mm -hmm. open process that people could view and taking a lesson from some successful reforms related to redistricting, having a panel that includes like more diverse interest and and by the way, that one of the important values would be that it can't just be white people coming out of the system or men coming out of the system but but then uh, the the other i think significant part of our uh, suggested reform is that you would have one long term and it would be done whether it's 14 years 18 years but you would not you cannot be reselected to this position and the and the idea is that you know i guess you could always go try to be appointed to another job later. But basically, you know, you could return to the practice of law. I mean, it's a it's a good long length of time, but that we would we, we would just take away the pressure of having to appeal to or please the the people who are reselecting you to the position.
3: John, I'm wondering if you, um, since since that's been proposed, that you um heard any resistance to to that one piece to the to the one long fixed term, because in some ways that that makes instinctual sense. But I, I'm just wondering if yeah. um, if there are groups or uh, um, you know um, I, I, ideals that that would resist that.
5: Well, you know, when we when we uh, when I released my paper and then we released this reform, I mean, I will be candid to say they did not set the world on fire. You know, it was just the time when like this issue is not like in front of mind when there's so many other big pressing challenges to the future of our democracy. But I've been encouraged in the last couple of years. I've suddenly been asked. This is, you know, just one example, but I've been asked about I read your paper. I want to talk to you about it. So there's there's people seeing that it's time to come back to this and i have to say the the one long term absolutely resonates with people i mean a lot of people in the system they 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 say that that would solve a lot of problems and it would be fine i mean i'm sure there's some people looking to make a career as a judge that might prefer something else but i i, I think it would it, it from what i have seen that, that there's not a lot of pushback to that idea
6: and i'll yeah. just jump in and add that quickly that um there <clears throat> and this probably been I don't know maybe about 8 years ago now but there was a group of fairly fairly high profile individuals advancing that proposal I think it was a 16 year term I don't remember for sure but as a solution to what ails us in Wisconsin um you know it it got some traction I think within the bar um part of the problem is it's so difficult to amend our state constitution that you know I think it just ran into problems of inertia uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that re-emerging here after um after the latest turn things have taken
3: yeah there I think John that you spoke to the fact that there it has or maybe several of you did about the fact that that, that ref- there's been some resistance to reform or there hasn't been a push for reform lately and uh, do you see that changing at all in the near future or you know what can be done maybe to 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 bring more attention to it if anything
5: um i mean in in in, in my the way i've looked at history usually it takes scandal or some public concern to you know Raise the salience of reform uh you know they you know in the like 20, if you go back 25 years ago there was kind of growing awareness of all the corporate money going into state judicial elections did wake up a lot of people and you had some of the building blocks for that two states actually passed public financing for judicial elections it was by i don't think it was the solution to anything but it was still amazing that it passed in in wisconsin and in um north carolina And then uh, later when uh, conservative Republican governments came in, they were were really quite, you know, they they made a point of shutting those down and ending them. But like, it's evidence to me that you can get the right, you know, if you get the, you know, the right groups, you know, some of the civic groups, the bar associations, and you have that little, you know, uh, rocket fuel of some scandal or some, you know, uh, public concern, I think, I think any traction in one state would begin to wake up or like, you know, deal with the inertia that's really paralyzed it for I would say the last 15 years.
8: And I, I agree entirely, John, on the scandal part. You know, we have a code of judicial conduct in in major part because of the Black Sox scandal in 1919. And then we had a federal judge who was thumbing his nose at the rules and saying, Yeah, I'll be commissioner of baseball and I'll be a federal judge. Who's gonna stop me? And Taft, who was a much more uh proficient Supreme Court chief, was always strong on ethics. And finally, we had the currency back then to get it done. So again, SCOTUS has a lot of issues right now going on. And then the press is continually uh, reporting on that. Maybe those are things that are going to get people's attention and they're gonna start reading these articles and and looking at how else could we do this. And the professors uh, and people like John are gonna have some ideas. I will, for one thing out there, first of all, I chose 14 years because they got double retirement, Uh, years counting. So that was a 28-year full retirement. So you can retire, you can go be a professor, you can do all kinds of things. And then secondly, there's some good articles out there. Uh, Philip Oliver, who was a professor of mine, I think he wrote two similar articles, one at Ohio State and one at Arkansas Little Rock, on that the average Supreme Court term was 17 years. And maybe we should do an 18-year term for the United States Supreme Court, because that would mean every two years if you staggered them. So no one's hanging on, breathing oxygen and trying not to die until the green candidate gets in there. Because guess what? I got elected, I get two. If I get elected again, I get two more. It's clockwork. And it takes a little bit of the politics out of it. Now, I'm being a little bit of a Pollyanna thinking we've got the currency to change the United States Constitution. But it's not a bad idea. And one of my professors, when he proposed that, I was like, that's that's a pretty interesting thing if you're studying this. So.
5: We support that too at the Brennan
3: Center. So let's see what else um can we uh, talk about um well actually I think we're ending we're, we're nearing the end of this portion of the program so before we turn it to the um to the audience to ask their questions why don't I um, and mine there, um, except to give each of you uh, a minute to to wrap up or respond to anything else that you heard. Um, John, do you want to start?
5: Yeah. So look, I I I really enjoyed this conversation, and I, and I look forward to hearing uh, uh, from members of the audience. And I'm sorry we can't all be there in person. I, I would I would just go back to something I said at the beginning that this is a an important democracy issue that for a variety of reasons. Um, has kind of moved to the background, and, and there's been le- not as much you know, public awareness of these challenges, o- although I had worked on this issue for 25 years, I was involved in philanthropy, supporting groups that worked on it, seen a lot of public opinion research focus groups, etc., and People do care about this if they're like informed about what the problem is. And they do believe deeply in the values of a fair and impartial judiciary. And so I, I think this is a sleeper issue that could take off. I think what Chad has told us about Wisconsin is, you know, I mean, this can, hap- this can happen in a lot of places and it's going to happen as long as we have a federal judiciary that seems, you know, that it's going in a certain direction, you know, uh, for a long time, you're going to see more push in the states for alternative, you know, <laughs> outcomes, you know, and, and alternative ways of interpreting the Constitution. It could be a great conversation, but it also could really raise like, uh, unrealistic expectations of what judging is. And so I just think that it's we're coming to a moment where people might say, you know what, we need that judicial selection method for the 21st century and let's invent it and and push it out there.
3: Thank you. Professor Olfey?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, John, we'll just have to airdrop you into Wisconsin and uh, have you solve our problems here, because uh, this could well be, uh, you know, the first domino to fall. Uh, I think there's really going to be an appetite for changing things, uh, because there was a little bit of one before, and, and this last race was was really, really extraordinary, in, even in the series of extraordinary races. I mean, and for me, you know, and, and this, uh, I think, goes back a little bit to, I think it was John's comment about uh, essentially judicial hatcheries. Uh, I, You know, I think that for me, something that has shifted, that's significant, that is worthy of attention is the way that the divides that have, you know, entered our society more generally have also entered the legal profession in a serious way. And I think that's a new development Um that we should try to counteract. you know, I think I think um, uh, the world would be a much better place without the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society if they just didn't exist. Um, I know that's an awfully sort of Pollyanna-ish statement to make as well, but I think that, you know, by sort of creating these silos uh, for people, um, we uh, lose something of the fabric of the profession. And I think professional norms, play a role in providing for judicial accountability as well as many other things um in ways that you know we really haven't focused um on as much as we ought to and that that turning our attention to to norms and reestablishing and resolidifying them is uh is something to look, focus on going forward thank you professor
7: rosenblum I I totally agree with with Chad and John, but I'm going to sound just a slightly different note, which is that there is no question that when reform happens, there will be powerful forces arrayed against it, trying to stop it. And they will accuse people pushing for reform of trying to destroy the independence of the judiciary, of disrespecting the norms of collegiality, and of politicizing a process that is apolitical. And we know they're going to say that because that is what they have always said whenever these reforms have been pushed. And so what I encourage, especially you know, to, to to the students in the audience, but also just thinking more broadly, is that, is that um, I think for some of the reasons that Chad and John have identified, these questions are not going away. And, and absolutely, it will be better when we are able to do the reforms and, and reinscribe these norms and strengthen our institutions but the process is already political. The breakdown has already happened. The forces are already arrayed. And so um, I I encourage you to, you know, gird your loins and remain clear-sighted because uh, as John suggested, the road to reform is going to be a generational project and it's going to be ugly because as a historical matter, reform has never followed a sanitized version that you might imagine, especially where what is genuinely at stake are questions of power and freedom and equality. So um, eventually the judiciary remains the heart and soul of our democracy, but it's going to be a challenging fight to preserve that heart and soul. And I suspect speaking for myself, that um, uh, people are going to allege that you are not trying to preserve it, even if that's what you're ultimately trying to do.
3: Thank
2: you. And to wrap it up,
8: Mr. Sacker. This is great. This is like a rebuttal close as a prosecutor. I get to go last. (laughs) Um, I agree. And I just want to piggyback on one thing. It is incumbent upon the bar to be involved. You know, the bar and and one of my favorite, I know I'm an ethics geek, but one of my favorite works is Ethics and Service by Taft, where he addressed Yale and he spoke about the, it's, and if if you read it, you will think he's talking about today. That the bench and the bar are at this, mo- and so I think it's really important that students, that that uh, law professionals, professors, and the bar all work for the rule of law. Um, international examples tell us right now that the canary in the mine uh, that we see in in society going down is whether there's an ethical judiciary and whether that judiciary can be bought off, and and we see that in places like Poland and Israel, some of the issues that they've had, they're fighting against. And that canary, if it's going to survive, we're going to know or we're never going to trust those judiciaries again. And having just come back from Mongolia, I will end with this. Uh, The strength of a wall is neither greater nor less than the courage of the men who defend it. And that is Shingis Khan. And that is who we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be the men and women who defend it. And that's what I will be. And that's what my career has become. And no matter (laughs) you in the audience, whatever you do, if you're a probate lawyer doing wills, fight for the rule of law, fight for fairness, don't fight for my team versus your team. Let's demand it from each other and and also criticize each other when we're hypocritical about it and and make us think about it because it is who we are. Otherwise, it's just the fickle mob.
3: A a very apt uh, conclusion. And I just wanna say before we go to the the audience questions that uh, I think one of the hallmarks of a good discussion is that it is thought provoking. And I think this one has been uh, both illuminating and thought provoking. So I, I I do thank you all. All right, do we have any uh, do we have any questions?
0: From- uh, yes, we do. I uh, thank all the panelists uh, for uh, that uh, robust discussion uh, about this topic. Uh, we're glad to now open it up to the audience. Uh, how is this is going to work is. Uh, we'll alternate between questions we have from uh, the in-person audience to the Zoom audience uh, and the audience has written on their note cards, please pass them forward. So uh, we'll try and get your questions. But well, we're first going to pass on to one of our audience members. Uh, who would like to ask her a question.
4: So, Thank you very much. First of all, I, I came a little late. I apologize. I was at a meeting with Judge Stein, actually. She had to leave early and I had to stay. But, um, First, thank you, very enjoyable what I have heard of this discussion. To ask you, uh, has anyone read, I was Alabama's top judge and I'm ashamed of what I had to do to get it. This is an article, well, for, have you read it? I don't see no. any. I commend it to you. It uh, appeared in Politico in 2015. And it is, uh, the chief judge in Alabama talks about how her treasurer would set aside an afternoon every week where she had to call the people who appeared in her court and and shake them down, really, really for money. And, um, and forget how much it was, but it was a huge amount that she and her opponent raised in this manner and uh she felt like she had to take a shower immediately after this in new york we thankfully we judges don't have to do that but it's only slightly removed because our treasurers are doing that for us in a sense and we do end up knowing many times who contributed because we see them in our fundraisers so it's only a step removed, but to the extent that we can take money out of the process, I think we are all much better served, and there will be a greater sense of uh, validity of the judiciary. And by the way, I love that game of con I jotted it down. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you. Um, that's more of a statement than a question, and I apologize for that, but. Uh, Public financing is maybe
3: something you ought to reconsider. Just if I can clarify for those of you um, who are less familiar, but uh, that was a a former uh, judge of uh, Albany city court and um, and. New York has this very haphazard system of uh, judicial selection. So, depending upon what ge- geographical area you're in, what court you are seeking to uh, sit on, the the process can be very, very different. So, uh, uh, Judge Kretzer, like I, uh, w- uh, did experience the elective system. Um, so, okay, any any thoughts on that at all? No, okay.
0: Uh, all right, so we next have uh, one of the questions from our audience uh, on a note card. Uh, it reads, when the judges of the New York Times court, the Court of Appeals were selected by partisan elections. We had Benjamin Cardozo, Irving Lehman, Stanley Holt. The court was extremely influential and widely regarded as one of the very best, if not the best state or federal, uh, federal court in the country. Today, the New York supposedly merit appointment system, no one would honestly suggest that the New York Court of Appeals has been to those earlier
7: elected courts, why do you think that might be? Whoa, whoa, whoa! No one would honestly suggest we've got some great judges since we went to the appointive model. I mean, you know, I'm a law professor at NYU Law, so you'll excuse me if I limit myself only to discussing the great Judge K. But obviously, there are other uh, uh, great judges we can point to as well. So I would, I might, you know, as, as my students would say, you know, don't fight the hypo, but I can't resist. That said, I take the point that obviously an elective system can produce some incredible judges. I would just come back to the transformation and the political environment and some of the other considerations that went into it. So I'm a legal historian, right? Like I love putting things in context, thinking about what it was that made it possible to elect someone like a Cardozo and a Lehman. New York State was a very different state than what it is when you start looking at where we find ourselves now. So who knows what would happen if we immediately went to an elective system for the New York Court of Appeals. But based on what we saw 50 years ago, there's reason to believe that you would have a large influx of private fortunes that would then influence the way in which those elections play out. And look, you know, I'm not, I I mean, I was going to say I'm not anti-rich people. Maybe I am anti-rich people. I don't know. We can talk about that. But like, obviously, Herbert Lehman related to the Lehman family, like, a very wealthy guy was, uh, 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 or Irving Lehman, brother of Her- Herbert as governor, Irving is brother. God, I'm, I'm, I, should be better on this. Lehman's right. Better like does. vast fortunes, but they can also be good judges, great politicians. It's not that wealth is inherently disqualifying. And, and, you know, judge Fuchsberg was like, he was a, a significant judge. There were some ethics issues, but he wrote some important opinions. Like, so it's, it's, it's not that, um, uh, uh, it's not that it's that it's roundly disqualifying all around. It's that the concerns that that were raised in that election are the concerns that motivated the reform, and there's reason to believe they might they might return. So the sum up would be different time then, different concerns now. And while perhaps um, uh, uh, we might disagree about whether Judge K and Judge Cardozo should be listed in the same sentence, I will go to the mat saying that they should. And that suggests that the appointative model can provide a way for even judges as illustrious as some of the great olds like Cardozo, who get through on elections, to get through today.
6: And I'll just yeah. jump in quickly to add: you know, I think Wisconsin proves the point that you know continuing with elections does not mean continuing with a a highly regarded court. Uh, and just an anecdote on that: uh, I think it was 2019. I was at a conference, and I don't remember the organization that put it on, but it was the audience was uh, state court judges and justices from across the country. And I cannot tell you the number of times during the breaks at that conference that I would have these judges come up to me and and ask some version of what happened to your state Supreme Court. Um, We used to look up to that court. It used to be a very well-regarded court. And, you know, now I think it's, it is true that um, most of the people you would want to have running justice would not want to do it because of what you have to go through and i think that the the political dynamics have changed in such a way as to really scare off those people um at least at least oftentimes um uh so you know elections uh elections maybe once worked uh and and didn't and on, i'll squeeze this in as well cuz here's an interesting story about contrasting norms um uh Minnesota last year had, I think, the last election cycle, one third of its judiciary was up for reelection. And there was exactly one contested race in the entire state. Uh, The judge whose race was contested happens to be a friend of mine who is possibly the most qualified person to be a judge in the entire state. Uh, and was challenged by a recent law graduate who thought he'd run for judge because he hadn't found a job to his liking uh, and figured he might as well take a shot. He, of course, got 40 percent of the votes. Um, So, you know, I I think that's partly a story about judicial elections. It's partly a story about different norms uh, where uh, where the legal profession in the state next door to us, um, maybe because they've peered over the border uh, and decided that uh, we're not the example to follow is just following a different path. And it it seems to still work there. Uh, It doesn't work here.
5: I I would just add, just very briefly, Judge Cardozo did not have to wage his campaigns on television. He didn't have to raise the kind of money required. And it's not just, um, you know, it isn't just defending off, or you know, some attacks. It's basically you need, you're not a real candidate if you're not on television. So that started a long time, even before these wars. And now it's basically you have to have a huge war chest to basically, you know, dissuade people from running a campaign against you and running against someone else. I just think that that has been a game changer and that it's become inconsistent with being a judge to have to spend all your time raising money or having others do it on your behalf, but you know who's giving you money. I just think that that affects public confidence in the courts as much as anything else. The idea that you can give a judge money and then be the lawyer in a case before that judge. That doesn't make any sense to any person not in the system.
8: Yeah, and also don't forget, and I'll just add, because I want to uh, comment on the younger generation and Noah's closer to that younger generation than I am or maybe some others on the panel, but... um yes. Nostalgia is fondly remembering things as they never were now we know some from some of the opinions that that's true but we also know that it's easier to be a deceased judge from the past than it is to be one right now uh and, and I have you know my uh, my cousin's child Katie travia is on is on watching this she's a third year at Elon We have this next generation my daughter's 25. And I see this next generation, they're going to change the world. They care more about some things. My generation, you know, when do I make partner and get my seven series? That doesn't seem to be the paradigm anymore. So, you know, yes, we could easily go Babe Ruth was better than, you know, the Yankees. They were terrible this year, by the way. But, uh, you know, than the Yankees are today. But, you know, when compared to their peers, we really need to also be careful of of over-dramatizing, glorifying the past and realizing that today we have a lot of really good public servants and we hear about the bad ones. That was my job, right? You know, So I know that, but I always wanted to make a, 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 an effort to say, I know that most of the judges out there are doing the right thing and really trying hard. We just need more of them and we need to make sure they're more independent.
3: Thank you. Kyle, do we have uh, time for another one or uh, are we?
0: Yeah, we have one last question uh, from the audience, uh, and it reads, What does it mean for finality and the appearance of justice when parties recently uh, request and are granted the ability to re-argue and overturn recent high court precedent that favored one political party after political composition of the high court swings the other way, specifically North Carolina, Wisconsin, and New York?
7: Preside. Oh, sorry, John. No, Please go. go no, please
5: go.
7: Oh, oh, oh. I, to no, I was just going to say that that um, I think it's a there's a there's like a, a, a theoretical question and then the sort of immediate question. I don't think I'm I'm well positioned to think about the immediate question, the relating to the particular cases that are pending. So I'll put that to the side and just say that on the theoretical matter, you're actually getting, I think, at the question at a deep, deep question which is what do we do with questions of precedent and change in light of the values of independence and judgment? Because I think we all acknowledge both that sometimes judges get it wrong and it's really important for judges to be able to revisit their decisions, and that there's something a little unseemly in the idea that the way a court rules is entirely a product of the personnel on the court. And I don't think that we've got a profound set or we, that's a, it's a profound puzzle. And the tools that we've elaborated in response are clearly inadequate. And for the most part, both as a theoretical and political matter, we kind of gesture at the problem and hope that it goes away. So putting on my legal history hat, right, Brown v. Board of Education is often pointed to as a proof text, as an example of a case where it was so important for the court to reverse itself and say, no, no, we got it wrong. And now we're changing it. And I think a lot of people today, this is right in line with what David was saying a second ago about how we we have nostalgia for the past that never was. Now we sort of look and say, yeah, yeah, of course Brown was rightly decided. And it was totally right for the court to reverse the wrongheaded earlier decision. How could anyone think otherwise? And of course, if you look back to the history, you see how incredibly contested it was at the time. And the response to Brown by many people, particularly in the South of the United States, was what a partisan political decision without foundation, a product entirely of the change of the personal on the court, done to advantage one group over another. This is indefensible. And it's only with the benefit of time that we've been able to look back and say, whoa, whoa, actually, the people who had that position, they're the ones who were wrong. And what looked at the time to some as an unprincipled political reversal was in fact a, um, a, a necessary step in the law. So I think the theoretical question that that this question is getting at is really deep and hard to address. But at least for me, it's a reminder that the rhetoric around these can be incredibly heated and why it's so important to be back in touch with what we think the genuine correct motivating principles are. Well, I I agree with Noah that there's
5: no easy answer to this question. On the one hand, it when a court does a 180 on an issue that it decided in the recent past because of a change in the you know population of the court. I mean the, the court is going to seem less dispassionate and more political probably in many people's eyes. On the other hand, you know, when we talk about accountability, part of accountability is that that the courts don't always get it right. And in our system we have to have ways to do, to deal with that one way to deal with it is you know constitutional amendment or passing a new statute you know if it's if we're talking about state court issues sometimes it is about you know, people saying we don't want judges who are so clueless and don't understand, you know, you know, you know, I mean, for example, if, I mean, we are we talking about judicial diversity, you know, in 18 states, there's not one person of color on the court, you know, and so maybe if there's a case involving, you know, racial justice, and people think, well, that they're disappointed in that, maybe they would actually agitate politically to have, you know, more diversity that reflects the state on and then, but that would be viewed as kind of a, popular form of democratic legitimacy right I and mean, people think that's good so it's it, it's it's challenging but i do want to say that um there is this push and pull where we need to respect the finality of decisions but judges are not you know on mount olympus telling us you know the the, the only one truth that exists can, through the push and pull of politics we can demand that the courts go in a different direction and that sometimes manifests itself in a Change of you know change of who's on the court, and it's going to feel different ways to different people. Some people are going to feel like it's a vindication of democracy. Some people are going to see it as you know you know political hackery, and and there isn't a particularly easy answer to this. Judges should be very mindful of it, however, and how they uh, and and uh, not just veer in a completely different direction when they have the chance to maximize their you know own own personal uh, views
6: yeah I think just uh, I agree with all of that. And you know the w- Wisconsin again illustrates how difficult these issues can be because this question of maps was, in a way, the the central issue in the election. Um, and so, you know, what do you do with that, right? What do you do with the fact that uh, you there's no way to amend the state constitution without the legislature? signing off without two consecutive legislatures signing off on a state constitutional amendment the very problem of gerrymandering you know prevents that from being a possibility here we the people have arguably overridden um the legislature on that and that seems like that should count for something right and it it also seems like it makes the judicial power at the state level Potentially a very different thing from the judicial power at the federal level, because you know the counter-majoritarian difficulty isn't a thing, uh, because any given member of the state supreme court is able to point to the fact that they were elected statewide, which is not true of any single member or subset of the legislature. Um, it's a complicated problem,
8: and I understand that that the issue of seeing something get changed fundamentally because it looks like now the other side is in control is the issue. But finality is just that it's not, you know, you don't have to be very deep into criminal procedure to teach about retroactivity and realize, oh, that guy was convicted and got life in 19, you know, 1999. The other one was in 2000. It's not retroactive. Sorry, the guy that was 12 months early doesn't get benefit. We have rules, we have things, but we also do have the ability to revisit when it comes to fundamental things in the law. And that's not necessarily a knock at finality. Um, And I'll end with a a folksy quote from one of our uh, football coaches down here after one of them got fired. He was the interim coach. And so he faces the media for the first time and they say, well, you know, how about this? How about that? But how does it feel to have the label of interim head coach? And he said, son, we're all interim. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and isn't that the truth, right? You know, so we like to think it's all final, but every one of us can have a (laughs) finality can take care of all of us. So, um, yeah, that's going to be an issue of trust and confidence with the judiciary to make sure that we think they're changing because they're revisiting fundamental issues, not because of political powers and who they're beholden to. But it is a very good question and a very deep issue.
3: Well, my my uh, opening remarks about how I thought we could probably continue this conversation for several days, uh, I, I still hold to that and uh, and I wish we could, but um, I think this is a, a good place to finish. and um, Kyle, do you have any uh, closing remarks?
0: Yeah, I just want to thank everyone for joining us here today for this important discussion. Uh, first and foremost, again, I'd like to thank GOC and the ALR. Probably put this together, uh, but also to John Ho, uh, Professor Rosenblum, Professor Oldfather, and uh, David Sacker for joining us today and leading us on uh, the uh, judicial selection methods of state courts. But uh, thank everyone for joining us. Uh, thank you, uh, you know, all of you guys
2: for coming together today and, uh, and listening to this important issue. So, uh, thank and you. a big thank you to Judge Stein for yes. um, wrangling these for experts. We really appreciate all of you.